Good morning, church. My name is Jess, and I am going to do the Bible reading this morning. So as Luke said, the Bible reading is from Titus chapter 1, starting at verse 5 all the way to verse 16. And it will be up on the screen there. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy messages as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. For there are many rebellious people full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach. And that for the dishonest sake, for the sake of dishonest gain. One of Crete's own prophets has said it. Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This saying is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and their conscience are corrupted. They claim to know God, but their actions, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, dishonest, and unfit for doing anything good. Well, good morning, everyone. Um, as Luke was saying earlier, we come to the second part of our <clears throat> second instance, if you like, our four-part series from Paul's letter to Titus, which you can see the outline on the hub if you've been able to connect to it. But I want you to keep your Bibles open at that Bible reading, chapter 1, verses 5 to 6. In case you haven't realised it before, um, leaders matter. Leaders matter. For the success of just about any organisation or the productivity of any business or the progress of a country, the quality of leaders matter. Now, whatever you think about the two leaders in the uh, US election this week, um, whichever side you're on, you can be sure that they have a vastly different effect on that nation. A couple of weeks ago, I was talking uh, to someone about a decline um, in the last few years of the enrolment of a particular school. I think over five years it had really gone down quite a bit. And um, when I inquired, was there a reason anybody could identify, the answer came back, the principal. Good leadership, of course, comes with its own burdens. Popularity rarely makes uh, good leaders. And this is true of the church as much as any other human organisation. 
It may, of course, as it is, be God's church, but God empowers human uh, leaders to direct it, to shape it and to protect it. Last week we saw in Paul's expanded uh, greeting his concern to further the faith of God's people at Crete because he couldn't be there himself. We see in verse 5 today that he tells us that he left Titus there to complete the work, to put things in order. Um, as the, and as the first order of business that Titus was to do, it was to appoint elders in every town, that is, pastoral leaders, to guide the work. In the rest of chapter 1, Paul puts forward both the positive and the negative of uh, what I've called by way of title how to be or not to be a church leader. The positive is stated in the first section in verses 5 to 9 and the negative in the second section in verses 10 to 16. And what Paul does here is effectively what I've called the act of a profiler. If you've ever watched any sort of crime dramas, you'll know um, uh, what the profiler does and how important a role it is. He or she is the person who lays out the pattern of behaviour common to a particular type of criminal activity, e.g. the serial killer or something like that. And the television show uh, has been around for a long time now called Criminal Minds is actually based heavily on this sort of role of profiling. Well, what the Apostle Paul does here is effectively give Titus a profile. A profile of what he should be looking for in the appointment of elders. And what are the telltale signs of a false teacher? So we look first of all then at the profile of the pastoral leader. Now, elders is a common word in the New Testament for pastoral leaders of the church. Um, but even in the New Testament, other words are used which seem to be virtual equivalents. You'll note, for instance, if you go down to verse 7 uh, today, that the word overseer is used by Paul to mean virtually exactly the same thing um, as elder. And churches today are organised with different structures of leadership, but they all appoint in one way or another pastoral leaders. So what's the profile? of a pastoral leader. One word is of primary importance to Paul. The pastoral leader must be blameless. In verse 6 he says, an elder must be blameless. And that means, if I can translate it, free from accusation. To be blameless does not mean to be sinless or perfect, as sometimes we might Uh, take it to be. I'm afraid only Jesus measures up to that sort of criteria. Rather, blameless means free from accusation. It is before God and before others around us in the community. This begins, of course, with the righteous status that every believer has before God through the shed blood of Christ on the cross and how that grace then manifests itself in the life, in the transformation of people's lives. So as one writer says, Paul is here telling Titus that pastoral leaders must exhibit strong signs of the presence of divine grace that transforms their lives in godly directions. 
And that transforming work begins in everyday life with the elders, marriage and family. Pastoral leaders are to be blameless in marriage and family life. As verse 6 goes on, he says, He must be faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild or disobedient. Someone who's going to lead God's people must demonstrate uh, the sexual fidelity of marriage outlined at the very beginning of creation where God designed sexual activity to be only between husband and wife. Further, the pastoral leader should be someone who draws the respect of his children and has passed the gospel onto them so they believe and have not rebelled against their father's authority in disobedience and wild living. Now, of course, bringing up children in today's world is a vastly different context to the ancient world. I don't think we should take this to refer, uh, for instance, to conflicts that parents often have with children in their formative years or those troublesome teenage years everybody seems to know about uh, that occur between parents and children. Wild and disobedient um, are here are very strong words. So we don't want to be wooden or legalistic or lacking in compassion with some of the difficulties in parenting today. Nevertheless, uh, what is clear is one cannot really separate one's fitness for pastoral leadership from one's track record in managing and parenting the family. Now, the reason for this is implied in verse 7 where Paul says the overseer is managing God's household. But it's made clear in the pastoral epistles in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5, which says this, If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? Faithfulness in marriage and family then is one test for the pastoral leader, of the greater task of whether he can care and manage for God's people. Second, a pastoral leader... No, that's not right. Let's go further. A pastoral leader um, must be blameless in character and conduct. In verses 7 and 8, Paul lists five traits of character followed by, um, sorry, five negative traits of character, followed by five positive traits as a means for Titus to choose elders of Crete. The negative traits are more like what I call warning signs, warning flags, that one ought to alert there uh, is a problem here. Anyone who's overbearing, quick-tempered or violent is quite unlikely to care properly for God's people. These traits really show uh, that they are too full of their own self-importance and superiority to humbly focus on the needs of others. Such self-centredness is also likely to lead to greed and, as Paul notes, the pursuit of dishonest gain. The example of Paul himself is very different. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 12, he says... I know what it is to be need, I know what it is to have plenty, I've learned the secret, I've learned the secret 
of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. This, this secret, you see, is the disposition essential to good pastoral care. Now, of course, the propensity to drunkenness, I think, needs no further explanation as to why that's not very good in the pastoral leader. From these warning flags, Paul adds positive traits and Titus should look uh, for being, uh, that he should look for. Being hospitable is a trait, of course, um, commanded of all believers in uh, the New Testament, a number of places, and hence doubly important for pastoral leaders. Leaders should love what is good, he says in verse 8, for this will form their encouragement of God's people to do good works, which we'll see is actually a constant theme as you read through Titus. To be self-controlled, upright, righteous, holy and disciplined, I think are really all features that proceed from a person who is a lover of what is good. Well, finally, Paul moves from the pastoral leader's character to the quality of his teaching. The pastoral leader must hold firmly to sound doctrine. That's my shortened way of summarising verse 9. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Now this message that he talks about, of course at that time, primarily refers to the teaching of the apostles. It's trustworthy because it's true and ultimately comes from God. The apostles having been commissioned, of course, by Jesus himself to proclaim the truth. It comes down to us, of course, in the writing of the New Testament and the completion of God's word. A pastoral leader must have a passion for God's word and have been taught by faithful teachers. Now, for churches in our part of the world today, this highlights the importance, it seems to me, of the Bible College or Theological Seminary. Almost all pastoral leaders, um, at least those who are employed full-time in churches, are taught and trained through the colleges and seminaries. Unfortunately, what they teach is not always the trustworthy method message handed down from the apostles. I remember many years ago when I went overseas to the US to do further study, I met an Australian man there who had started off studying in Sydney at a seminary uh, in Sydney and he'd left and ended up going to the US. One of the reasons was because his New, New Testament lecturer did not even believe that Jesus was God's divine son. I don't know what he was doing there as a New Testament lecturer, but that was staggering. When I was teaching at the Bible College of South Australia, a first-rate college, by the way, I thought I put in a plug for the Bible College of South Australia today, um, a couple of students who'd emigrated from uh, Uganda came to us from another seminary in Adelaide where their Old Testament teacher did not believe in the miraculous crossing of the Red Sea that we've been looking at in Exodus. <coughs> My wonderful Ugandan student just said to his Old Testament lecturer, you must believe in a different God to the one I do. 
And indeed he did believe in a different God. He believed in the one proclaimed by the apostles. Paul gives two reasons to hold firmly to sound doctrine. Positively, so that leaders may encourage God's people, he says, and negatively, so that they may refute those who oppose it. I want to come back to this last point of refuting near the end. You'll see why. Here then is the profile of churches ought to be looking for when it comes to the appointment of pastoral leaders. Blameless and free from accusation in marriage and family life, in character and conduct, and holding firmly to sound doctrine, to the trustworthy message proclaimed by the apostles and coming down to us in the Bible as God's written word. Can I just say that I think we ought to uh, give thanks that we are actually, in this regard, part of the Trinity Network here in Adelaide. I know that many of you come from different church experiences and may see some things differently in some regards, but we're part of a network that works to train full-time pastoral leaders according to this profile. And we should thank God for that. And if you're not a believer here today, can I just say that our aim here is to preach only the trustworthy message handed down from the apostles, the word of God we have in the Bible. There are still many pseudo-groups out there claiming to be Christian, but teaching other than the trustworthy method about Jesus. But you can be sure that that is what we will always teach here. So I encourage you to read it for yourself and decide what you think about Jesus. Well, from the profile of the pastoral leader, we move to the profile of the false teacher. These are obviously, there are obviously a few problems going on in Crete and Titus needs to be aware of the appointment of elders. I've summarised them briefly in three aspects and the first one is there, already there. They are rebellious, disruptive and deceptive. That's verses 10 to 13, let me read them. For there are many rebellious people, full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced. They are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. One of Crete's own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil, brutes, lazy gluttons. This saying is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply, so that they will be sound in the faith. Just note the first word in verse 10.4 connects this section which, with what has gone before. The description of Cretan culture in verse 13 is rather dismal, isn't it? <laughs> Liars, brutes, lazy gluttons. I'm not sure any culture would like to be known like that. Rebellious probably refers here not simply to rebellious against leaders, that is, their authority, but also to the trustworthy apostolic message. They're rebellious to the message because they reject it. Instead, they're full of meaningless talk and deception. That deception is in Paul's identification of the motive behind their teaching as one of dishonest gain. So serious does Paul regard their teachings that he says they must be silenced. 
Why? Because, he says, they are teaching as a result of paying attention to human commands. In verse 14, and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. And you may have picked up by now that the Jewish teachers in this case come out of a a Jewish background. Circumcision group has been mentioned, now Jewish myths have been mentioned um, here. It's pretty obvious that the problems in Crete uh, come from a Jewish sect in this regard. But this sort of problem is, a, is one that the Lord Jesus himself encountered with the Pharisees. In Mark chapter 7, the Pharisees asked why his disciples don't wash their hands in the way prescribed by the tradition of the elders. And part of Jesus' reply goes like this. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding to human traditions. You see, the false teachers were forsaking divine revelation for human opinions. In a moment, I want to outline just three examples that I think where this happens today. But last of all, and yet probably the most important of all the characteristics of the false teachers, is that their their behaviour displays actions that deny any claims to know God. Verse 15 and 16. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and their consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient and unfit for anything good. Now you might remember if you were here last week, in Paul's expanded greeting, we saw that his trust from God to further the faith of God's elect was exercised through a knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. In verse 1. Putting it in his greeting, you see, showed its great importance. And now we see why. These false teachers claimed to know God. As a lot of people still do today. The Jewish myths Paul refers to in verse 14 may have promised some super spiritual experience, but their actions proved otherwise. Almost certainly the negative characteristics referred to earlier as the warning flags in the choice of a pastoral leader were evident in the actions of the false teachers. They claimed to know God, but their actions showed that they're unfit for anything good. Here then is the profile by which you can test false teachers. They reject the truth, they're motivated by dishonest gain, are disruptive, and they move away from the knowledge of the truth to meaningless, empty talk. Teachings that find their source and ideas in human ideas rather than the teaching of Scripture. Now because of the danger that false teaching presents, there's one characteristic of the profile of the pastoral leader that I skimmed over earlier and said I'd come to at the end. It is the courage to refute, rebuke and silence. 
Paul mentions all three, you see. In verse 9, one of the reasons Paul gives for firmly holding to the truth is to oppose those who refute it. In verse 11, he says, these false teachers must be silenced. And in verse 13, he urges Titus to rebuke them sharply. Refute, rebuke and silence. The courage to do this must equally be evident in the teaching of the pastoral leader as the ability to encourage his people. In my years as a pastor and teacher of God's word, there have been uh, numerous teachings that have caused havoc in God's churches. I want to just give three examples that have been around recently, some of them you may be aware of. I can only give a brief explanation here. Happy to talk about them over morning tea. First, here's the prosperity gospel. It's sometimes known as the health and wealth gospel. In essence, the prosperity gospel teaches that financial blessing and physical well-being are always the will of God for his people. With faith, you can give generously to that particular church, of course, and God will reward your faith with even greater material wealth. That's the essence. It comes in many forms today. But preachers seem to ignore the whole teaching of Jesus and his apostles about suffering. You'll never hear that. If the truth be known, really, this is simply self-centeredness. And certainly part of what Paul calls here teachers ultimately motivated by dishonest gain. Second is what I call the permissive grace gospel. This is a proclamation of the grace and love of God, which of course we proclaim here in Christ, but it is to the exclusion of the need for the transformation of one's life. God is love. He loves everyone. He loves every one of you unconditionally. Christ died for all people. There is nothing you need to do, just accept God's grace and love for you. Sounds wonderful, doesn't it? God's unconditional love is interpreted, though, as unconditional acceptance, regardless of lifestyle. One only need read the first verse of Titus to see this error. For the knowledge of the truth that Paul preaches is one that leads to godliness, as we saw last week. Such a a view completely ignores God's intention, God's intention in giving us his spirit that we might live holy lives and become more and more like the Lord Jesus himself. Third is what I call the grace plus gospel. Now really this has been around I think almost since the time in the New Testament but seems to remain so strong that it occurs in every generation. It's the notion that you need more than God's grace in the cross of Christ to save you. Its most common appearance is the idea that good works need to be added to grace. You need grace plus some works to be saved. Now this has often been the common teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. 
it can, however, be far more subtle. Any notion which makes an experience, speaking in tongues, going for a second blessing, or a particular ritual, baptism, or a particular form of baptism, is necessary for acceptance by God has actually crossed that line. Like I said, you can talk to me about these things afterwards if you'd like. Let me conclude. Now you may, you may, you may have been sitting there uh, this morning thinking, well, I see the importance of all these things for pastoral leaders, but it doesn't have much to do with me. But why do you think all these things Paul puts forward as the profile of the pastoral leader? Only for one reason, friends so that they, that is, pastoral leaders, might teach, demonstrate and model what God wants to see in all of us. That is why godly leaders matter. And they matter a lot. To teach and encourage us to a knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness in us all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that um, the message of the truth preached by the apostles, that you have preserved that message and brought it down to us in the New Testament and then together with the Old, completing your word to us to direct us today. We know that as human beings though we are a bit like sheep we tend to follow those um, we prize and so we do pray Lord that you would provide us here at Golden Grove and within the Trinity Network we do thank you indeed for the godly leaders uh, that are trained in the network for their love of your word and for the demonstration of the things we've looked at in the profile today. Uh, But Lord, we ask that you would always remember or help us to always remember that this profile is really one for all of us to take on. That this is what you want to see in all our lives. To be blameless in our family, marriage and family life. To be blameless in our character and conduct. And to hold firmly to the word of truth that you have given us. May it be so for each one of us here at Grove today and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.